Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. A word of warning this podcast contains discussions that some listeners may find distressing or triggering. Please use your discretion. Hello and welcome to Reclaim Me. My name is Madeline Heather and today I'm joined by Kathy Oddie. Now, if you're wondering why you know Kathy's name, it's because she's been on the show before. Kathy Oddie did episode three, Advocacy is in My DNA, part one and two. So I encourage you to go back and listen to those episodes as well. But for now, welcome, Kathy. Hi, Madeline. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Uh, look, it's... Um... It's felt like such a journey to get to this point um, of where we're sitting chatting again today, but I feel incredibly grateful that we're having this next stage of our discussion and to be getting through to like the third part of my story, which in a lot of ways has been the most significant, but also the most painful part of what I've gone through in my adult life. So um for, for people who haven't maybe listened to the first two parts of my story, just a quick recap is that um, I experienced an abusive relationship in my early 20s, which lasted three and a half years, followed by 10 years of stalking. And during that time, I was raped by a stranger. I then went on to um, become a family violence advocate in 2007 and became involved with things like the Royal Commission into Family Violence. But um, it was during the time that I'd already um, begun my advocacy work that unfortunately um, I actually met the second perpetrator of abuse towards me and that was in 2010. But what I really want to highlight is that at the time I met him, I was actually in such a point of strength in my life that um, I, I was it was just almost in a, similar in a way to when I met Perpetrator One. I, I wasn't feeling in a place of weakness. I was living my best life um, in that sense. I'd um, had the Victims of Crime Assistance Tribunal had finalised um, my claim for um, the rape that I'd endured. So in 2009, my best friend and I headed over to Cambodia, um, as well as some other um, Southeast Asian countries. And we did some um, volunteer work there, which had something I'd been wanting to do for many years. And it was a really amazing way to change the karma of what had been such an awful experience that I n never wanted to go through from using that uh, those funds to actually go and 
um, give back to um, a community that was really struggling outside of Sam Reap. Um, I'd got back into um, being accepted into a Bachelor of Social Work at La Trobe Uni um, and I completed, like I got in it at an advanced standing level and um, was um, successful in getting a rural um, allied placement scholarship and doing my placement at a um, youth drug and alcohol withdrawal centre in Ballarat. So I'm kicking all these goals. I'm saving money. I've got money towards a house deposit. Um, I've got a really great group of friends around me. I'm um, doing advocacy in the family violence space. I've got my job at Centrelink still at this point. And it just seemed like just as when I'd met um, perpetrator number one, the world was my oyster again. Um, it was opportunities um, that were really positive were coming my way. I was um, being at a complete task that I'd set myself and I was, I was feeling really good about myself and good about life. And it was in this context that I met perpetrator two. Um, and it just happened to be that it was New Year's Day of 2010 I had this overwhelming desire to go out and get some oysters at PJ O'Brien's um, <laughs> down on South Bank um, because they were doing half-priced oysters on Fridays and I, I'd worked on the, the New Year's Eve and um, so I hadn't gone out. And plus, you know, my dog at the time was the sort of dog that really can't stand fireworks and in Brunswick where I was living at the time, every second house lets off their own fireworks. So I, I like to be around to look after her. So anyway, here's me thinking, right, I'm going to see in the new year with some special half-price oysters at PJ's with my um, Irish heritage. It's something that I've always loved, um, Irish music and culture and, and the banter of, of Irish pubs. Um, so, it, yeah, it was somewhere that for me was a, it was a happy place. And I just happened to be there, sitting, eating my oysters, having a contemplative pint of cider, feeling good about life, thinking about the year ahead, when this strikingly handsome man came up and said hi to me. We got chatting. And um, this was the man who was going to consume the next six and a half years of my life because things moved incredibly rapidly. We um, yeah, like if you could call anything love at first sight, I think this is about as closest as you could to that. And if you think we met on a Friday, he moved in the next Thursday. Oh, my gosh. And yes. And in hindsight, probably not the best idea to move that quickly, but um, there were some reasons around that. So he'd come and stayed the weekend with me and after the weekend when we were sort of catching up, um, he made me aware that him and his housemates, which were some young men who are from the same village from Ireland, which he'd grown up in, um, that their landlord had decided that, no, um, he wanted his own son to move back into the house and had asked them if they could be out by the end of the week. I'm almost thinking now that I know these individuals that. Um, it was possibly they, this man got to see how rowdy they were when they'd had a, a large amount of alcohol consumed and had decided, what have I taken on here? <laughs> and 
<laughs> ask them to leave. So anyway, when I was um, having this conversation with this perpetrator after the weekend, um, he was saying, oh, look, we're going to actually be um, homeless as of, of Thursday night. And I said, well, where are you going? And he goes, oh, look, we're probably going to have to just, you know, sleep in the park in Footscray because that was the area they were living in because we don't get paid for our work until Friday. And I said to him, look, that's absolutely ridiculous. Don't do that. No, I've, we've clicked and I've met um, your mate and he seems like a really nice person too. Why don't you just come over and stay at my place Thursday night, both of you, and then when you get paid on Friday, we'll find you a youth hostel that you can move into then. Yeah. Um, because I was very much remembering back in my early 20s when I was doing my backpacking around Europe, but there was a stage when I was working in London and things didn't work out the way that I'd like them to. Um, and there was a period when I actually thought I was seriously going to have to sleep in Hyde Park myself and I got um, saved by a, a very, very lovely person who had been a regular at the the place where I worked um, and they put me up until I moved on to the next place I was going. Um, and so in my mind I was thinking about the London incident and thinking, you know, I, I, I couldn't have it in me to see these people sleeping in a park given the nature of how dangerous that area can be. Yeah, definitely. Um, so anyway, came over Thursday and didn't leave until he ended up actually walking out six half years later because we had just at that point enjoyed each other's company so much. And um, But really when I look at it, the warning signs of his behaviours were right there from the beginning. Um, and with all you I know now, I- do you look back and think that some of that was love bombing? That intensity up front, that dependency, that mirroring potentially behaviour? Was that stuff that you saw? Oh, definitely. But I think there was also something else going on at the time for me that um, was about my own self-esteem because the other aspect to what was going on here was a bit of a sliding doors situation in that, um, as I was saying earlier, that I had been doing my um, third-year social work placement back in my hometown of Ballarat. And um, during that time, because my, my dad is very close with the local Indigenous community and one of his best friends is an Indigenous elder um, who'd often visit my dad. And I was staying out at my dad's farm during that um, that placement and there was this one night where my dad's mate turned up with a, a younger man and I'm thinking as they're walking down the driveway, I'm thinking, ooh, who's that guy? He's looking like a bit of all right. And it just happened to be a situation where um, it was in the middle of no winter and Dad had the the fire going in our big old um, lounge room, which used to be the local ballroom for the area. Um, Our house has um, been there since the 1850s, since our family built it there. And so, yeah, it's it's a really special place. And... um, so this man, Nick, um, and I gravitated to the lounge room where my dad and my stepmom and my dad's friend, Ted, um, ended up being in the kitchen where there's also another fire going. And so here am I sitting, chatting to this really, really interesting individual. Um, 
it was just one of those conversations that I'll never forget in my life because it was just just amazing. He was just so like emotionally intelligent, so switched on. He was someone who um, was a filmmaker and a writer and and worked in also in Indigenous art. Um, and he was a few years older than me and it was just one of those sort of lightning bolt type of connections um, and just so easy to talk to. And above the mantelpiece um, in this lounge room is a beautiful black and white photo of my grandmother in her wedding dress. And he goes up there and he picks up um, the photo of my grandmother and said, who is this beautiful woman? Sorry, I'm getting emotional because my grandma right. passed a few years ago and I really miss her. Yeah. And anyway, um, I said, well, that's my gran. And, and then I explained to him, look, this is actually the room where my grandmother and grandfather met at a, at a dance um, many years ago. And so it was just this beautiful moment. And I hear I'm thinking, you know, I'm typical romantic and I'm going, wow, like he's this absolutely gorgeous guy, one of the most gorgeous guys I've ever met in my life and just so easy to talk to, ticks all the boxes and imagine the story as you do. Sometimes you're already projecting forward to go, and how did you meet? Oh, we yeah. met in the lounge room where my grand and my grandpa met. <laughs> yeah, it's meet cute, isn't it? He would have <laughs> he would have made a film about it for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. And anyway, so to go forward from there, like um, he was working um, at a, a place in Ballarat, one of the Indigenous um, art galleries there, and let's just say I was making excuses to go and check out the artwork, <laughs> <laughs> as I say in inverted comments, um, on probably a fairly regular occasion. Um, and, you know, we got chatting and we ended up going out on a few dates and things were progressing on a really, really lovely slow burn and but nothing had actually happened between us in any physical way but there was just that connection and that spark but it was just so beautiful because um as I was saying like you know in terms of previous relationships and things that I've had things have moved in a really quick way or I've met in a way such as out in a social setting that um you know not not the most exciting way to meet and this for me was just a really lovely meeting and just the way that it was evolving very slowly so jump forward to um January meet um Irish guy in my mind I'm thinking nothing has actually happened as yet with Nick and so I'm not cheating on Nick this is just a slow evolution wait and see Irish guy is just going to be a bit of fun while working out what's going on with Nick yeah um and what you're I living never, quite a distance away as well, Ballarat and um, Melbourne where you're living at this time are quite a distance away. Absolutely. And I, and I was thinking at the time, look, you know what, um, something may happen with that or something might not. But, I mean, I'm really enjoying getting to know this lovely guy in a nice, slow way. But in the meantime, he's this fun Irish person who's a bit, you know, sort of crazy and a bit full on, but, you know, they're, they're just good time to have with. So I thought I, ne- I need a bit of that right now in my life. Um, and But I never, ever, ever expected him to stick around because he was one of those people who really openly vocalised things like those statements, I'm here for um, a good time, not a long time type of attitude. Yeah. Um, honestly, 
it was the last thing in my mind I could have ever expected that it did last the length of time it did. Um, but when I now reflect on that situation and the two guys that were in my life in that moment, that I look at it and go that here was this amazing person who was right for me in every possible way, who treated me with respect, who treated my family with respect, who treated his own family with respect. And when he actually eventually introduced me to his family um, a couple of months later, the way that he talked about me and introduced me to them was so respectful. Um, and But I guess I felt, given the fact that he was a few years older, I didn't feel good enough for this person. And I hadn't ever experienced up to that point having someone in an adult relationship treat me in a way that you should be treated. So I, I because of everything I'd gone through in my 20s, um, so the point I am in age-wise right now, um, I was... Um, I was 30 when I met um, Nick and, and, and met my ex. And so it's that sort of next stage of womanhood. But I felt that, you know, I was so impacted by everything I'd gone through up to that point that I just thought, you know, I, I felt very insecure about here's this amazing person, why would he want me? I'm not good enough for him. Yeah, yeah especially yeah. somebody like accomplished that's, you know, in, in every way asking you the things that you need and, you know, that's a really incredible statement to make I think as well because he's giving you a, attention. Um, obviously you're, you're bonding but it's not the attention that you're used to as well so it's a bit, must be a bit confusing. Well, it was confusing, but it was, like I said, it was something that was happening just in a really lovely, slow, nice way. So I was used to the sort of attention that I would get from Perpetrator 2 and the sort of um, attitude and treatment there, and it's that sort of where you're, in a way, having to chase them a little bit um, because they're, they're elusive in the way of their behaviours. And because of them having that bit of like a, a bad boy attitude, um, but, you know, the rebellious against society, all those sort of things that, um, yeah, it, it was just, I guess, a, um, it felt more familiar. Um, and also where we look at um, this lovely guy, Nick, being a few years older, um, the perpetrator was six years younger than me. Um, so... It's it's not necessarily that I'm you no know, normally would go for guys that are younger than me, but um, the, the thing at that point in my life I was really looking for and needed after all this serious stuff that happens, I needed a bit of fun, and that's what he was in spades. But because of the fact that he lived so much in the moment um, and was very selfish about his needs this was something that stayed very much part of the dynamic of our relationship for the entire time we were together. And so when I look back now on that sliding doors moment of thinking, well, what if I hadn't have gone for those oysters that day? 
um, yeah. what would have happened. And I have to look really stop myself and go, don't beat yourself up because it, what happened happened. And I ultimately made the choice to go with the perpetrator than to go with the other guy um, because by that stage um, the perpetrator was living with me. Um, we were becoming closer. Um, we were, you know, becoming dependent on each other. And um, I was actually developing genuine feelings for him. And at that stage I just in terms of really thought, well, I can't keep having something else going on with this other person because he's just too amazing that I don't want to be leading him on and something serious is developing here. So I, I ended it. And um, So the dynamic of what went on in from there is like I've got this person who has serious um, substance and alcohol abuse dependency. Like I guess the fact that I met him around a New Year's period, I sort of really excused a lot of those behaviours from two things. One, it's a celebration time of year. Two, he's in his mid-20s, so that's sort of fairly normal behaviour for people around that age, particularly if they're in that backpacking mindset. Um, But as I know now, that wasn't just a a New Year's party time backpacking thing. This was actually established behaviours that he'd had for many years and that he would go on to have throughout the course of our relationship and it caused so much stress and pain towards me in terms of the impact of his addictions Um, and it really played out sort of... um, as that year went on, um, towards the end of the first year of our relationship, his um, mum, dad and younger sister um, came out to stay with us for a few weeks and I'd managed to get, I think, like a week off work and then the rest of the time that they were there, which was a few more weeks, I had to actually go back to work at my job at Centrelink. Um, So... That entire time that they were in Australia, they pretty much spent it drunk. Um, I and it's kind of like um, masters in Irish behaviour, isn't it? It's like, oh, you know, meet you down the pub, and that's the behaviour that they have. And it's kind well, of is that like in your mind? You're like, oh, okay, but then it goes on for three whole weeks, and you're like, is this isn't normal? See, I've done a lot of traveling. I've done a lot of backpacking. I know a lot of Irish people and I want to make it really clear. This is not about Irish people. Irish people are wonderful. I really love them. Um, And you can have people who struggle with drug and alcohol addiction, regardless of what culture. What I see though, is um, very much within his family group and also his friendship network of the the people that had also moved to Melbourne at the same time that were from the same village, it was a tribal thing because within their group it was completely normalised behaviour to drink to the excess that they did. In fact, I was the abnormal one because I didn't want to have three-day binge sessions um, that I would stop Um, that I wouldn't be staying up for days at a time with no sleep, Um, that though the fact is that I don't need to take substances to actually go out and enjoy myself, but that that 
constant need to get your buzz on, get a high happening, that sort of thing that I would see it within that group. And, you know, if there was any point that I'd be saying, hey, no, isn't enough enough? No, we've been out for this long. Let's just go home now. I would be absolutely slammed for making that suggestion. I would be the fun stopper. Um, And it really started to um, contribute to that control and isolation side of things because I ended up having to feel like I couldn't even speak out about this and I'd feel even in a social setting that I'd be the person to the side and I'd be excluded that even though here's this group of people um, that are from the other side of the world, I'm I'm like to the edge of the group constantly and I had to actually point this out to my partner and just said, look, you've got these people that you've grown up with um, or who are your family that, you know, we're hanging out with. That's fantastic. And I get that you're talking about all these memories and experiences. Brilliant. But you're never actually bringing me into the conversation and including me in it. And I may as well just not even be here. Yeah. Like it doesn't seem like it'd make any difference whether I am or I'm not. I just seem to feel like I'm, you know, the glorified taxi service because I choose to sometimes drive my car because I don't want to be drinking to excess. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, by the time his family got out here, this type of behaviours were quite ingrained. Um, the other part of it too, from a financial perspective, is in that first year of our relationship, his visa, he was on um, working holiday visa, it actually expired like within a, a month of our relationship starting. So he was not of a valid visa status. So for the first year we are together, um, he could only work off the books. And this was a state of high anxiety that this caused for me and him because I was um, a public servant. Yeah. It, it could be seen as a breach of the you know, APS code of conduct that I'm essentially harbouring um, an unlawful immigrant in that sense um, without not making a notification around that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But sometimes your heart rules over your head. And so the, there's this established pattern which leads on to later when how the financial abuse developed was because he moved into my home. I was on the lease. My name was on all the bills. Um, initially he made a token contribution because, you know, I was very mindful of the limited work he could get without a valid visa. So here's this thing where when I'm earning a decent income in a you know, secure government job and you know, I'm supporting him, he's not having to take any responsibility about putting his name to anything because, in fact, he can't because he's trying to evade actually you know, being found um, where he is. So, yeah, that, that it was all sort of about living in the moment, no responsibility. Um, so to see that I thought when his parents came out, I'd maybe get a bit of a different view of him acting in a bit more of a mature way. Yeah. yeah. But no, because they had exactly the same behaviours. And there was a point during the time that they were here that um, he really wanted to go out and score drugs before going to this music festival that we had um, tickets for. And I'm just like, are you serious? Because one, hello, your family are here. 
Um, do you really want to be high and, you know, taking something like ecstasy or speed when you'll be coming home and they're here? And two, just it's just don't do that, please, right now. Like, you know, it's just not okay. Um, and it developed into this big argument where he physically assaulted me and also took like my laptop that I had the time and ran out of the house with it. Um, and I was just absolutely distraught. And his family's response, like his mum, boys will be boys. His dad was, because I was like, he's kicked me. Um, he's done this um, and he's gone out to get drugs. Oh, no, he hasn't. He didn't do that to you. It's... And are they that, staying at your house? I was staying at my house as my guest. By this stage, they'd already been drinking straight for a couple of weeks. Um, it's, yeah, so I, I really discovered in that moment that these people were not allies in my life and basically I could see very directly where his problematic behaviours were coming from. And, and, um, and acting out in, you know, losing control, like you've said no, you've created a boundary, his initial response, you know, and it sounds like especially with this visa visa abuse, you've got this weight over your shoulders, you've got a family staying with you. If you don't do certain things right, then he might lose his visa, you lose your partner, you lose everything. But he gains everything from that and he's got that trump card over you. Well, I'm not going to go on the lease. I can't pay. I can't this. I can't that. And it's the ultimate trump card of controlling you. And then it's like the moment that he loses that control or you set that boundary, his only way to gain it back is to lash out with violence. That's Yeah, and and this is um, by this stage two of that year, which was um, 2010, some things that have sort of, I guess, made me a bit more emotionally dependent on him was because um, twofold, like in the February of that year, um, I had been uh, assaulted by a stranger um, down at South Bank. Um, yet again, when, you know, all these parties were way too intoxicated and um, she was actually, you know, trying to um, crack on to perpetrator number two and I was just like saying hello he's here with me and you know this drunk backpacker um, I think she was English um, she took objection to that in her intoxicated state and she actually um, pushed me really hard down on the um, the concrete down there on the the, the side of the river there at the Yarra um, so I, I fell over and then sort of my head cracked um, the back. So I fell on my back and my head cracked the concrete and then she's dragged me along by my hair. And Oh, my God. Oh, I know. And as I know now, <laughs> there are no CCTV cameras out in that sort of at the front of that main entrance section there, which is sort of where it happened. Um, I walked away and um, my ex came with me at the time, but, like, I could hear her... Um, laughing and yelling and I, I ended up reporting that to the police but you no know, as seems to be the case with these violent individuals who commit offences she, she left Australia fairly shortly after and nothing happened to her um, but what that's meant for me ever since 2010 is that I've had a whiplash type injury in my neck ever since and I've had 
so much pain um, as a result of that and then subsequent neck injuries that happened over the next six years that she has left lasting damage to me um, and that's led on to, for me, from a purely health perspective um, and financial perspective, I've had to take so much time out um, due to the the pain of the injury. Um, You only get a certain amount of paid sick leave in a full-time permanent job. Once that um, is exhausted, you actually then have to take unpaid leave. Um, So you're impacted financially there to get health treatment, which is actually um, has any sort of benefit for me is osteo treatment. I happen to be in a position where I do have private health cover, but even with that, you still have the out-of-pocket expense. So I have literally spent thousands of dollars in treatment um, since 2010, plus on the other side, having to take so many days of unpaid leave because of having sick leave exhausted um, and that plus other incidents that have happened subsequently, what has happened for me now with just on the pain aspect is that when I am feeling stressed, when I'm you know, under a lot of pressure from when things are happening in my life, um, that can actually trigger a flare-up of my um, neck and back injuries. When those flare up, that actually triggers for me at times the depression, anxiety and PTSD and the stress of having to be financially impacted as well. It's like this awful vicious cycle because each thing, it's not just one thing or the other thing. You're impacted financially, emotionally, physically and I, I feel like I'm that hamster on a wheel running round and round that I can't get off um, to to get some respite from being on this vicious cycle. And so, yeah, so basically this has happened in the February. At the same time, my mum, as I've spoken about previously, suffers from bipolar disorder and she had a very severe episode, became homeless. I'm having to deal with this and get all her stuff into storage when I'm in the midst of this neck injury. And this is where the point where party guy switched into empathetic helping guy and when I actually fell in love with him because, you know, people were probably listening to this going, why on earth did you not go with Nick? Why did you go with him if he's not really showing himself to be of any substance? Well, this was the moment he showed himself to be of substance because... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I couldn't barely move. And with my mum in hospital, with the community sector organisation, who I won't name, saying that, no, they're going to put all my mum's possessions out of the transitional housing she was in out onto the doorstep, even though they she knew she was going to be in the um, adult acute unit for a few more weeks. And I was begging them, saying, look, I have a neck injury. I cannot come to Ballarat. Um, I cannot pack her things because of this injury. Yeah. Um, can you please just give her a couple more weeks? Um, no, you, you can lock the room, whatever you can still get a new tenant in to the other room, um, but they just refuse. So in this state of all this crisis happening, this is where he actually stepped up and he came with me to Ballarat. He's not met my mum by this stage and here's him helping me pack up her most personal belongings. And I saw this whole other side to him, which yet again, this is the thing that people need to realise with um, perpetrators of abuse, that they're not one-dimensional. They're not just bastards all the time. Then, no, and the same thing with people who are addicted to substances and alcohol. They're not always in that state of um, being intoxicated. So he showed me that he could be genuinely compassionate and um, and that was actually a bit of a constant throughout the years that with my mum having a period during those years of having a number of admissions to hospital that he genuinely was so supportive and caring um, about supporting for me, but also about my mum. And, but at that year, it put so much stress on me, all of that. So I ended up actually having to have a few months stress leave from my role um, before going back to work. And it was just around that time when his family had arrived in Australia was when I'd gone back to work from having that period of stress leave. Not to know that they were actually going to cause me all this extra stress. Yeah. they left. Let's just say I don't feel particularly close to them in that moment and thinking, phew, sigh of relief, they've gone, thank God. Yeah, now hopefully some of this respite that you've been, you know, looking after for so long, like that would have been absolutely like almost looking forward to them leaving. Please leave, I'm over oh, it now. I was so happy about it. Anyway, I thought let's hope he now calms down in his behaviours Um And unfortunately, he actually then kept escalating towards the end of that year and it was on our, (laughs) I'm laughing because it was our one-year anniversary. So 
yeah, he, he went out on that New Year's Eve. Um, well, it was actually meant to be both of us going out to an event that we'd purchased tickets for. And, but he decided to drink a whole bottle of vodka before we were meant to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, no surprises to that severely impaired his ability to behave in any sort of way that was reasonable. He then did what he would often do during that period of time and did a runner. He you know, went off and found his um, Irish mates that he'd grown up with. Um, when So like so many occasions during the time we were together, special events that we'd planned for and we'll look forward to got completely destroyed by his drinking behaviours. Um, he returns the next day in a absolutely revolting state. So on you know, the day which is our one-year anniversary and the way that he then assaulted me in the home, um, severely assaulted me, um, he held a knife to my throat and threatened to kill me and after going through everything I'd gone through with my first perpetrator, I was like, I by now was deeply in love with this man but I was excusing a lot of his shit behaviour to his drinking and substance abuse. Um, so in my mind, he was a bit different to perpetrator one because, um, like, yes, he had had um, incidents of violence towards me at this point. He'd also tried to push me out of my moving car at one stage when we were actually driving over to my brother for his, his birthday party. Um <laughs> This is the, I just feel like this was the pattern of our relationship that so many special occasions, which he knew were special occasions for me and my family members, he would deliberately either get himself drunk or pick an argument with me before we would go out to that occasion. I turned up at my, this is the first time or, no, maybe the first or second time he was meeting my brother that year. It's my brother's birthday. He's picked an argument. He's tried to push me out of the car. I turn up there trying to mask that I've been crying my eyes out. Yeah. And, and like, I literally lost count in our relationship of how many times that sort of stuff would happen. And so, you know, on this day that um, he's come in and he's done these things, I'm like, I'm not, <laughs> I can't have a repeat of relationship one. I'm calling the police. Um and, yeah, and they came and, honestly, I was, as I saw the um, divvy van, you know, pull up and they're putting him in the back of it, I'm just bawling my eyes out. I felt, honestly, like the worst person because this is not a person I hated. Um, I, I just genuinely wanted him not to harm me and and to actually just control his drinking. Um he doesn't really remember any of that incident at all. Um, now, a, different to what I went through with Perpetrator 1 is I have to actually commend the police of this experience that they did put a, um, a family violence um, safety notice into place. They took a statement from me and him. Um, he was actually charged with serious assault and threat to kill and yeah, and, and then a court date was set for an um, intervention order hearing. Um, and and at this stage I was feeling incredibly confused because, yet again, the emotion was still very much that I wanted to be with this person. I just didn't want these behaviours. Um, 
and my family as opposed to in the first abusive relationship where they hadn't known what was going on, I actually reached out to them and they were being very protective and supportive and uh, obviously incredibly upset um, to hear that this had happened and very angry at my perpetrator. Um, So what happened then is the decision was basically um, him and I talked and um, that we would try and work things out. He, he, I said to him, look, you know what I've gone through in the past. I, c- I cannot live in that sort of relationship again. Um, I said, you have got these things that are going on for you, but you need to be the one who wants to actually get help for this. I'm not going to tell you to do this, but I'm, I can no longer remain in a relationship if this is going to be the dynamic um, of what's going forward. So he chose and he went through the process of looking it all up and getting booked into drug and alcohol withdrawal and men's behavioural change. And he did that before he was even court ordered to do so and had actually completed that before even the court date had happened. Yeah. And this, I guess, when people say, why would you, one, get into a first relationship like that, you let, let alone a second one because I think the, the difference too here is like first relationship, I had no clue about what helped to get or really it was all such a shock to the system that this stuff was happening. By relationship two, you know, I'm seeing the warning signs. I can pick what's going on now. I know what help is out there. In fact, I'm out there talking about this stuff Um and that's also playing on my mind because I'm like I'm feeling like a fraud because of like how can I be out talking about this when I'm going through this shit again? Yeah. Um, and and I didn't feel like I could say to my family violence um, acquaintances in the family violence sector, hello, I need help because I, I thought I'd be, it's like admitting failure. Like here you are, you've come out of adversity, you're out saying, you know, I've survived. Just go, oh, hello, I've fallen back into the pit of no shit all over again. And so there was all those factors playing in. And um, so we, because of his commitment to change, which I hadn't seen with the first perpetrator, I, when it came to the intervention order hearing, I sought the, the type of conditions where he could remain living in our house but um, that he would not be able to come into the house if he'd consumed alcohol or substances and with all the standard conditions of not being able to abuse, harass, threaten, all that type of stuff. Um, And it was a 12-month order. The other part was in terms of the actual, um, no, the, the threat to kill, the serious assault. This is where he put pressure on me to have that downgrade. Like I, in my heart of hearts, felt he should have to actually face responsibility for committing those acts. Because he did them. He did them. And I said, look, you know, I'm not going to whitewash what you did. You may not recall it, but this is actually what you did and this is what happened and you caused me to be so fearful mm. and you've, you know, caused these injuries on at the time. And so to his credit, he didn't argue that, about what he did. He did later, but in that point in time um, he accepted that, he had committed these offences and took responsibility for his actions. And so what the key thing there was, it was like if this these charges stand, I won't be able to stay in Australia because I won't be able to go for 
um, any other type of visa. And like he wasn't of a valid visa status in this in that particular moment. And so based on that pressure, I went back to the police and said, can you drop those charges? And they said, no, we won't do that. I said, well, this is the situation is that we wish to remain together. He is doing all these things to actively address his problematic behaviours. Um, if there is a criminal record in place for him, he cannot actually apply for a partner visa with me. And um, that's going to have all these implications. And so they weren't happy to completely drop the charges, but they were happy to downgrade them to where there wouldn't be a criminal record that he'd have and that he would face diversion program. And so that's what ended up happening. He faced diversion and had to pay a fine to the court. I look back on that now and go, that was such a massive mistake. He should have actually had to face the charges that were initially stood. So that led on to then him being able to, um, we put in the application for the partner visa, which is an incredibly expensive process, very lengthy. It took 18 months for that to be granted. Um, yeah, and during that time, Yet again, if we look at the financial aspects of it, when someone is not of a valid visa status and they apply for a different visa type, their partner, who is the Australian person, in this case me, is meant to um, you sign that you are financially supporting that person. So I'd made a commitment to the government that I would do that for him. Um, the fact is, no, really, I wasn't in a position to be paying all his expenses. Um, so he found some off-the-book landscaping work until he was granted his visa. So he was still earning a, a, a much lesser amount of money to what I was, but he was making yet again a minimal contribution. But I was the one who was the main breadkeeper for the house and, and having that responsibility of keeping the roof over our head and paying the bills um, because I could see that no, I wanted this long-term future with him and so I was prepared to make that investment in our relationship. And, look, it, it took my family a lot to regain any sense of trust in him. Yeah, absolutely. And, Cathy, I think I did want to ask you a couple of questions sure, going go. back. So I've been reading a lot recently about narcissistic abuse and one of the things that I saw as a as a key and common theme with narcissists is that they will do that and intentionally try and um, because the the center of like a family event is not on them that they will deliberately try and derail that family event by you know rem you know and I think you know as you were going through that I was like isn't this you know incredible because I've never had a, a level of that link in textbook wise you know with. With people's behaviour, it's never black and white textbook. There's always shades of grey. But it's interesting to see that that would be a pattern for you that every time that there would be a family event or something important to you that he would purposefully derail that. Um, is is that that's something that, you know, you feel like you resonate with? Like obviously you've gone through everything. Do you think that he was somewhat on that level of narcissistic abuse of putting themselves first and everything? Oh, he was incredibly narcissistic because whilst he had the um, capability to show ca compassion and empathy, like in situations like with my mum, he picked and chose when that suited him. 
Um, but he also, which was incredibly cruel of him, would use things that were told to him um, and then turn that round to become part of his coercive control and psychological abuse because where on the one hand he could be beautifully supportive and loving around um, understanding what I'd gone through previously or supporting me to support my mum and being lovely to my mum when he'd be talking to her when she wasn't doing so well. But then he could flip around and um, actually be using, like as I could very much see that he did, the stuff that I would talk to him about how perpetrator one um, had interacted towards me at times, he then started adopting those behaviours and um, he knew that I'd tell him about the sort of things that were triggering for me and he'd actually deliberately create um, an environment which would be triggering or he'd try to keep baiting me so I would have an emotional response to something and then when I would have an emotional response, that's the gaslighting aspect of it, um, I would then be the crazy person and I'd be like, the sort of stuff he would say to me is, oh, you're just like your mother, you've got bipolar. Um, and, And he liked to sort of, in a really cruel way, make something a term of endearment, but it was actually something that he was saying to be abusive, like in that case he'd put on that lovey-dovey voice and be like, oh, you're my bipolar bear. Um, oh, my gosh. And it actually made me furious because I'd be saying to him, um, this is not okay with me. That is so disrespectful towards my mum. There is absolutely nothing wrong with the fact that she suffers from a certain illness. It's no different to having any other form of illness. And I've been very open and upfront with you about the diagnosis I've had as a result of the trauma of that experience. So you know full well that I've not been diagnosed with that. I do not have bipolar, but if I did, that would not be an issue and you should not be using that against me as if it's a negative thing. But in this case, it's not even true. Yeah. And and that he, he just knew those trigger points that could actually really, really cause harm in her and would pull those out at a moment. Like we could be having a really nice day. Um, but it might be yet again that we had something planned and he's decided he doesn't want to do the thing. So he'll press one of the trigger points yeah. to st- start an argument to get that tension and so he has the excuse to go, oh, well, F this, I'm going to go off and hang out with my mates and then return three days later after a binge drinking session. And it's like that textbook is again as well. It's, it's the coercive control and it's the narcissistic type of abuse to bait somebody and I've read that a lot as well, that baiting to get a response out of you and then to call you crazy from responding to something as awful as that. And it might not be a violent or anything outburst from you, but to, to, to raise your voice in any way, sometimes it will be met by that crap. Oh my God. Okay. I was just saying, and then you respond and it's just ridiculous that that coercive control as well. Um, I've seen so often in a lot of stories where they get love bombed, they they open up, they tell their biggest, deepest, darkest secrets, and then intermittently you're being physically assaulted or abused but emotionally taunted and tortured. So you're kind of on this up and down, and then when things go on that downward slope, 
all you want to do is work towards getting to the place that you know that it can be and you want it to stay there. And then when it does, you've got that reinforcement that maybe a behavior that you did enabled you guys to go back up to the top. And it might have been maybe I just won't go to family events anymore because then we will stay at the top and we won't go down to the bottom. And you can see this cycle and I think it's a really, you know, it's it's utterly consuming and you can mm. I can feel it in your voice and what you're saying. Like my chest feels heavy because I can feel how full on that cycle must have been for you to go up and down and then you get that intermittent reinforcement and you start to blame yourself and see yourself. And it's just, I think for the people listening to this, that's something that they're going to resonate with because it's not always the physical, but that intermittent horrible abuse and the intermittent um, bringing down fed in with the positive makes you always want that. Well, see, this is where... Like between the two perpetrators for me, they had a number of similarities. So if we look at what they had in common was that they were both from country areas. So perpetrator one was from a country town in Western Victoria. Perpetrator two was from a really small fishing village in Donegal. Um, Both had histories um, where there was intergenerational family violence and um, alcohol abuse um, that had spanned across a number of generations. Um, For both of the perpetrators, um, they came from families who were, would quite openly say that they were religious. Um, And in terms of that spiritual abuse was another part of what I, particularly with perpetrator one to a lesser extent with perpetrator two, because I am not a religious person, um, and because, you know, my parents have chosen to end marriages when they were no longer happy rather than staying in unhappy marriages, whereas in my perpetrators, their parents had remained together um, but in a very abusive, toxic relationship. Yeah. Um, but because they had remained together, they are morally, you know, better people um, than my family and obviously I was a shit person because I'd come from such a family that um, no, my parents had made the courageous decision to end relationships that weren't working. Yeah. Um, so they had that in common um, but I think the thing that was really different in terms of the dynamic of how I felt between them two, as I've mentioned before, is that person, the perpetrator number one, um, it was a weird Stockholm syndrome with him that I can't really say I was truly in love with him. I think it was a very codependence, but what kept me in the relationship for the length of time that I did was very much the fear, yeah. the fear of the harm he would cause me and the fear he'd cause my family. And he was um, definitely the most physically abusive. However, Perpetrator two, um, yes, there were a n- numerous incidents of physical abuse. It was not to the extreme of perpetrator one. However, the level of emotional abuse, gaslighting, coercive control, um, verbal abuse 
was much more extreme and also there was sexual abuse and financial abuse um, and the visa abuse, all those things too that I experienced with perpetrator too. So that meant the six and a half years I was with him for me has been actually the much more damaging relationship and the fact that he used that the things I told him about perpetrator one as a playbook of, you know, how what he would do to me um, and act out examples of things that I'd said had been really harmful. Um, and the thing that was difficult as well, which was like a constant theme of his verbal and emotional abuse towards me, was that, as I've said a bit earlier, I was struggling with physical um, injuries, some of which had been as a result of perpetrator one, some of which were things that happened during the six and a half years that I was with my perpetrator, number two. He wasn't always necessarily responsible for those things. Um, But because of the fact that I was going through, one, supporting an ill mum, having physical injuries that I was dealing with myself and then the resulting mental health impacts that had on me, Um, I wasn't as active as I would have liked to have been during that time because of the nature of everything that was happening for me. And so he knew that I felt quite sensitive about my weight. Now, um, I'm probably right now about similar to what I was throughout that relationship at different points. Um, When I met him, Oh no, probably about 10 kilos lighter. But I would not see myself as obese, but he would com- no, very frequently call me that. Um, any argument about it doesn't really matter what the topic of the argument was about. It would all come always come back to I'm a fat cunt, I'm a fat bitch. Um, that my weight, my appearance, that he could get better than me, um, he could get anyone he wanted, that, no, he can walk out any time he wants. So it was that thing that, like, he knew I was head over heels in love with him. Love kept me in relationship two. Fear kept me in relationship one. But part of his abuse was the fact that um, that <laughs> where perpetrator one, I wanted to walk out the door multiple occasions and he was preventing me from walking out the door. Perpetrator two was constantly threatening that he was going to walk out the door. Yeah. Um, I could honestly just listen to Kathy all day, but for now, this is where we're going to end part one of this second edition with Kathy Oddie. I want to say thank you to Kathy for her open and honest discussions about coercive control. It's so important that we know more about its insidious nature in our society. But for now, this is Reclaim Me signing out. Thanks for listening. This content may have been distressing or triggering for some listeners. In Australia, for national crisis support, please contact Lifeline on 131114. For more resources, please see the show notes for this episode. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.